Here may all manner of persons, men, women, young, old, learned, unlearned, rich, poor, priests, laymen, lords, ladies, officers, tenants, and mean men, virgins, wives, widows, lawyers, merchants, artificers, husbandmen, and all manner of persons, of what estate or condition soever they be, may in this book learn all things what they ought to believe, what they ought to do, and what they should not do, as well concerning Almighty God, as also concerning themselves and all other. These words, commending the study of Scripture, were written in 1540 by Thomas Cranmer, the chief architect of the English Reformation, in his famous preface to a revised translation of the Bible, known as the Great Bible. In the same vein, Cranmer continued, Every man that cometh to the reading of this holy book ought to bring with him first and foremost this fear of Almighty God, and then next a firm and stable purpose to reform his own self according thereunto, and so to continue, proceed, and prosper from time to time, showing himself to be a sober and fruitful hearer and learner. If he does so, Cranmer maintains, that person will be able to teach by good example of life. However, the person who comes to Scripture, in Cranmer's words, he that intermeddleth with this book, by which he meant, as he says elsewhere in his preface, with superfluous contention and sophistication, then they will bring on themselves the same consequences for the wicked, as recorded in Psalm 50, verses 16 to 23, our passage for today. What did the words of these verses contain that were so serious that they represent God's reprimand to the wicked, and act as a cautionary point of reference for Cranmer? To answer this question, we need to consider the psalm as a whole. The psalm is a liturgy, or part of a liturgy, associated with the renewal of the covenant by the people of Israel. The first part, verses 1 to 15, sees God summoning his people, because though they know what to do, they misunderstand the meaning of sacrifice. They perform the prescribed rituals and ceremonies of worship mechanically, and are good at external observance. But they don't recognize that God has no need of such sacrifices, and their motives are insincere. Their formalism in worship is condemned. The solution, God commands them, is not to abandon ritual and sacrifice altogether, but to bring to it a real disposition of thanksgiving that animates it. How to do this? God tells them. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. So all sacrifice is worthless unless it is in thanksgiving for the way God has heard our cries and petitions by how we acknowledge his provision and how we respond with praise. God is to be worshipped in reverence and awe, not with empty formalism. As the verse in the more well-known psalm, Psalm 51, that follows this one says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God then switches his attention to a second group, the wicked, the subject of today's passage. Who were the wicked and what made them so? 
They were not pagans or non-believers. They were those who knew and could recite the law but did not keep it in practice. They accept God's word as true and right, but as Calvin says in his commentary on this psalm, when it comes to regulate their conduct and restrain their sinful affections, they dislike and detest it. What benefit is it to be able to recite the law if they hate God's discipline, if they ignore God's word, and if their moral and ethical conduct is questionable? It makes their worship superficial and false. The main charge against them, therefore, is hypocrisy. And this charge of hypocrisy is illustrated specifically in relation to their breaking of three of the commandments. One commandment says, you shall not steal, but they see a thief and join with him. In other words, cooperating as friends with thieves. Here is dishonesty. Another commandment says, you shall not commit adultery, but they throw in your lot with adulterers. In other words, keeping company with adulterers. Here is disloyalty. Another commandment says, you shall, not you shall not bear false witness, but the wicked use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. In other words, they do not control what they say and they speak badly of family members. What made matters worse is that they assumed from God's silence that they would not be called to account, and that such silence in their minds equated their behavior with God's. Those things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you. How can such people enter into God's presence in worship and recite his laws? They can't. This way of living denied them the right to worship. In Calvin's words, the ungodly only aggravate their guilt by assuming the semblance of piety. Or, as he says further, those whose religion lies in an observance of ceremonies with which they attempt to blind the eyes of God, and the vanity of seeking to shelter impurity of heart and life under a veil of outward services. The message is that faith and morality can't be separated, as if the one is God's realm and the moral order something different. Those who speak of God's laws but don't keep them are similarly denounced by Jesus. In Matthew, he is recorded as saying, Woe to the teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Here Jesus condemns the hypocrites who claimed to teach the law, but in fact led their hearers astray because they did not practice it fully. The lesson for this second group is to know that God wants our moral life to coincide with our religious practice. So, there are two groups identified in this psalm. One group knows what to do, the other knows what to say. Both are going through the motions of religious observance, playing at being religious. Neither know God at a deep level. 
So in this psalm, God demands that his people recognize who he really is and what he expects of them. Both groups are given a choice between their own destruction or their salvation. This salvation is held out to them as a promise. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me, and he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. Salvation is available to those who attend to God's instruction, God's word, God's way, and the obedience it demands. In other words, in thought, word, and deed. Our tendency is to be contented with the performance of outward acts. Despite the strictures of scripture and the cautions of reformers like Cranmer and Calvin, all too easily do we measure our faith by the fulfillment of externals, religious busyness, keeping up appearances, and acting out of a sense of duty. We need to be concerned if our worship and prayer life are becoming formality. And this psalm is a warning against formalism in what we say and do. Remember what Moses did when he heard the following words from God. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. We are told that he bowed to the ground at once and worshipped on hearing these words. And this is the disposition of heart and mind that we need to bring to our worship. We need to examine our motives and realize that what God really wants is faithfulness to his word and evidence of our willingness to discern what that word is telling us to do. Similarly, with our worship, we should not be focused on the externals, but on our personal response or dedication to the Lord based on a commitment to trust and obey him. Because God is intimately involved in the details of our lives, the lesson for us is to think of the whole array of involvements we have every day and ask ourselves the question, does our behavior or practice match our beliefs, faith, and commitments? Is there a disconnect between what we believe and what we do? The Ten Commandments are given as the discipline of moral living. For starters, consider the three mentioned here, honesty, loyalty, and slander. In these, and in all manner of others, let it not be said of us, in Cranmer's words, that we were idle babblers and talkers of the scripture out of season and all good order, without any increase of virtue or example of good living. Amen. <laughs>